Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me and this opportunity to preach God's word to you. If you could, chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. And I'll read starting in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I have acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I'll pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come here, even though it's been a hard week for many in this church. Lord, I pray that you would be with them and that you would be with me right now as I proclaim your word, that you would uh, edit my thoughts, edit my words by your Holy Spirit, that you would uh, enable those to listen to me, even if I'm not the clearest, Lord. I pray that you would use me to, uh, to be able to give these people here, these brothers and sisters today, just a glimpse of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Few things get Christians more excited, uh, real Christians, I think, more excited than hearing a testimony. Uh, testimonies of how God has saved sinners, saved uh, our friends, our family, and changed them to make them trust in Christ and believe in him for eternal life. It's something we love. Everyone a year ago or so was getting all excited because the rapper Kanye West got saved, and we were hearing that all the time. But it's not something that's new. It's something that the church has always had. One of the most famous books in all of church history is Augustine's Confessions. It's a whole book about how this sinner, this heretic, this prideful man who was overcome with lust, who had a mother who prayed for him, who had a pastor, Ambrose, who taught him, and then he took up and read God's word, and he changed his life. And even March 17th is coming up. St. Patrick actually has a book called Confessions 2, which talks about his conversion. He was a slave in Ireland who was was treated terribly, but he learned about Christ. And even when he was freed, he loved Christ so much and loved the people of Ireland that he went back to the people who enslaved him to proclaim the gospel. We love the story of Martin Luther, who was a a monk that was so ate up with sin. He had no idea how he could be right before God, but he learned that justification comes through faith and it came and started a reformation. We love the story of John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, who was a slave trader and did all these vile things, but God changed him by his grace and made him a preacher and made him fight to end slavery. We love the stories of Wesley brothers and George Whitfield and their holiness club. These men thought they could be holy enough for God, but they learned that they needed to be born again. We love these stories because they're ultimately our story. It tells us about, it gives us a grand picture of who God is, what he's doing in the gospel. In the New Testament, this comes all from the New Testament. There's actually one conversion story that gets mentioned quite often, six times in fact, and I'm talking about the conversion of Paul the Apostle. It's six times. I didn't know that until I was teaching this in Sunday school a few weeks ago to the children. I was thinking, looking at references, but Paul's conversion in one way or another gets brought up 
a decent amount of times. Three times alone in the book of Acts, it gets described for us, and in Galatians and 1 Corinthians, and here in 1 Timothy. That's six times. There's more words devoted to Paul's conversion in the New Testament than to the virgin birth, to the transfiguration, and even the Lord's Supper. Why would the Holy Spirit devote so much time to this one man's conversion? Is it idolizing Paul? Is that what it wants us? No, I think the Holy Spirit is telling us through uh, constantly mentioning it, he wants us to see this grand example of what God has done, the gospel working in this one person's life so that we may understand the gospel better, that we may understand what God has really done for us. Paul, it turns out, is not like a super extraordinary uh, conversion. It's actually just a, all of our conversions in microcosm. It's a sinner who is vile as can be, who's become regenerated, who's been born again in Christ Jesus through sheer grace alone. And that's what I think today's passage teaches us, that Paul's conversion, that his grace he's received gives us a better understanding of the gospel, a better understanding who we are apart from Christ, a better understanding of what Christ has done for us. And with that understanding, it makes us worship and serve Christ better. So let's start in verse 12 of today's passage. I think him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, for a little bit of context, Paul is writing to Timothy, as it's called, First Timothy. And it's uh, he's a pastor, a young pastor at a church of Ephesus. He used to be Paul's disciple and traveling companion. But now he's been left at Ephesus to take care of this church. And Paul is now just giving him a letter that's very practical about how to do that ministry, such as how to pick elders, how to pick deacons, how to take care of uh, widows comes up. But in verses 3 through 11, what happens before my passage, Paul's warning Timothy against the false teachers. There's always been false teachers. It's nothing new. And these false teachers, they love talking about everything except the gospel. They love talking about the genealogies, these myths. They love teaching the law, but they don't know how to use it right because they don't know the gospel. And uh, Paul says, beware these and don't be like them. Be a good steward of what you have. So I think in verse 12, we see Paul telling us how how Timothy and how we can avoid being like the false teachers. He's setting himself up in contrast. These men aren't faithful and aren't judged faithful by God. They're not good servants. But Paul is. And why is Paul? Because he is someone who can't get over the gospel. He is someone who has an adequate understanding. He can't t tell anything except the gospel. He says, I will preach nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is what keeps him tethered. And that word service, he was appointed to his service. That's not a specific apostle word or a, even a preacher word. That's just a general word for serving. It's where we get the word deacon from. And actually, according to Ephesians 4, we're all call, called to service. And it says the body of Christ is all appointed for the work of ministry. That is the work of service. Same word there. And we all have a service to God that we need to be faithful for. There's always temptations to uh, go off the tracks. Paul didn't have the same service as Timothy. He, Timothy was not an apostle. He was a preacher. And you might not be a preacher. But this service, you still need to be able to be appointed faithful to whatever the service God has called you. Maybe it's to be a uh, leader in your family or a disciple of your children. Or maybe you're called to be encouragement to your friends and family or just a good co-worker who works heartily for the Lord and not men and is a gospel light where you work. We've all been called to serve. And the only way we can do this service right is if we 
understand the gospel. We understand that our ministry, whatever service or gifts you may have, all come from God. Paul starts with a thanks. He doesn't say, uh, I'm just so good in and of myself. I'm judged faithful because of myself. No, the God of the universe gave him and the Lord Jesus gave him the strength to do it. Oftentimes when ministers go off the tracks, it's because they start thinking they're God's gift to humanity. And if uh, we have a lot of servants of the Lord that have been turned, and I can't think, help but think of Ravi Zacharias and the terrible things that you have, but the warning signs were there if you read the report. This was a man who talked to these women he would abuse and say, you're God's gift to me and stuff like that, and try to tell them that. Uh, if you tell people against me, you're ruining God's work. This was a man who clearly did not understand that any work he ever did was because of God's strength. He wasn't God's gift to humanity. None of us are. Ministry and service is a privilege, and that's what Paul understood. And that's how he was able to be a faithful servant. And it wasn't because of himself, because he gives thanks for the God who's given him strength. It was because of God. It was actually despite himself. That's what we read in 13. He talks about though. He's saying, even though I'm, he is faithful, but it's not because of anything in himself. It's because it's despite of himself. He describes himself. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Paul was someone who blasphemed the name of Christ. He thought he was worshiping the God of Israel. He was doing, he was attacking and blaspheming Jesus because he thought he was worshiping God. But he, even in Acts 26, he admits he would go from town to town and even making people Christians blaspheme Jesus' name. He persecuted. Not only did he use his uh, words to go against Christ, he used his hands and his uh, actions to go against Christ. He had his words proved his actions. Uh, he persecuted the church of God, which is one of the worst things anyone could ever do. Because the church alone has the gospel. The church alone is the one who has the message that brings salvation. And Paul was a dead set to destroy the church when it just was born. And if Paul was successful and ended up arresting all the Christians, we probably would not be here right now. But God, good praise be to God that he didn't let that happen. And that God, uh, Jesus himself, uh, promised that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. But his a sin was terrible. And ours is too, ultimately. We might think, oh, I've never said the Lord's name in vain. I've never broken the third commandment. Or I've never persecuted the church of God. But we ultimately have all used our tongues, our minds to, against God. We've all used our actions to be against God. You might not have been a full-on persecutor and blasphemer, but we all have used our tongue to uh, of blaspheme God, when we complain and grumble against his providence, all the good things he, he's given us, we've persecuted his cause. When we uh, divide over uh, things in the church, we don't adorn the gospel with the right thing, uh, the righteousness that God calls us to. We've all terribly failed. And that what brings us to the last part. Uh, Paul describes himself as the insolent opponent. And to tell the truth, I didn't know what insolent meant. I had to look it up. Uh, insolent just means prideful and haughty. It's someone who's uh, against God, but in a prideful way. And that's what describes sinners better than anything else. And describes us. It describes Paul and it describes us. Paul was someone who thought he was blameless uh, before the law. He thought he didn't need a justifier. He, he thought, no doubt thought it was crazy talk that a Christ had to die for him. And that's where we are too. 
We, according to the Bible, according to Romans 5, we are all enemies naturally in Adam. We are enemies against God. And that's where, how Paul has such strong language here. That he understands just how sinful sin really is. How putrid, how disgusting, how uh, vile it really is. He never got over it, even though he's an old man at this point. This has been years, decades ago that he did these things. But he, he still remembers it. He still knows how vile sin was, his own sin was. Because Paul, he's not like today. He's not who just, if people do believe in sin, it's just in reference. It's always uh, in comparison with other people. Oh, Adolf Hitler is sinful because he's worse than other people. But no, Paul knew his Bible. He knew, he had good theology. He had a God-centered view. He didn't compare himself when he thought, thought about his sin. He didn't compare himself with other people. He compared himself to God's righteous standards. And that's what we need to do. That according to God's righteous standards, a perfect, holy God, none of us are righteous. None of us are any better than Paul. We are all insolent opponents. We have set ourselves against him. We need to understand that sin, as R.C. Sproul said, is cosmic treason against God. It's full-on rebellion. Whenever we sin with our actions, words, and deeds, we are spitting in the face of God and reviling him, the God who's given us so much. And that's one of the reasons Paul never got over the gospel, because he never got over how sinful he was. He never got over how much he needed the gospel. And we shouldn't too. We should be constantly remembering that outside of Christ, I have spit in God's face with my words, actions, and deeds. I have not used my tongue righteously. I've not used my hands. I've not used my mind. I have sinned against God. And that makes me remember that I need the good news and we're all so prone to forget that. I've been there. It's, and even when I was some time I was at seminary, uh, when you're hearing the good news over and over and how much it is, you get kind of bored with it sometimes. And I was there at one point. Every other theological subject kind of interests me for a while. But that's because I forgot just how desperate I need a Savior who justifies me, a Savior who dies in my place. And when we forget the good news, when we forget the uh, sinfulness we have, our need for the gospel, the, the good news loses its savior, savor. It loses its sweetness. Because the good news, once we forget we're sinful, it turns from good news to okay news to all right news to who cares news. And But when we remember that we are in deep, deep need, that we are ultimately insolent opponents, and admit that personally, like Paul does, that we are in need of a savior, that's when the gospel becomes good to us. When we understand that, we won't be able to get over the gospel. It won't become boring to us. It becomes our hope because our life, we have no other hope besides this. And that's what we need to do. And that's what Paul's preaching, teaching us here. Even though he's an old man, godlier than I think maybe anyone in this room. But he never got over the gospel because he never got over his own sinfulness. And great sinners need mercy. And that's what Paul got. So Paul was an insolent opponent, an enemy of Christ on his way to try to destroy Christ's bride, his body, his bride. And right when you would maybe think in this story that maybe God was going to strike him down in Acts. Uh, he did that to Ananias and Sapphira. He, he strikes down Herod. These people, in some ways, aren't as bad as Paul. But God instead saves him. He shows him mercy. And that's what sinners need. But I receive mercy because I have acted ignorantly in unbelief. I don't think Paul is giving an excuse here when he says ignorantly and unbelief. Ignorance is never an excuse, according to the Bible. All sin is ignorance of God's sovereign will. And unbelief 
is one of the chief sins. Paul says everything that does not proceed from faith is sin in Romans 14. It's not an excuse. It's actually he's saying I received mercy because of how sinful I was. That's all he ever attributed to his salvation. Nothing. It's not because I did this or that because I had good intentions. No, it's because of my ignorant unbelief. I have nothing to stand on. God received a mercy. He didn't. He didn't get what he deserved, but rather he gave he got grace. In verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's what great sinners need. Great grace. That is undeserved favor, not something we work for, not something we earn, but grace that is given not just a little bit, but grace upon grace. Paul was a great sinner. He didn't need a little bit of grace. We don't need a little bit of grace. We need overflowing grace. And that's the grace Paul received. The world needs grace. They don't need new politics. We don't need new morality. We don't need a new system or whatever else these people think we want. We need grace from God. And we, it can only be found in Christ Jesus. And there's faith and love in him that we receive. And this faith and love isn't Paul's faith and love. It's the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. It's in Christ Jesus that we find this faith and love that we need. Faith, that is his faithfulness. That is us, one who uh, served, one who was faithful to God's covenant when no one else was. When we were faithless, he was faithful. He obeyed God's word. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, and mind, and he loved his neighbor as himself. He was faithful in everything he did. He went to the cross because for the God's glory, for God's plan. He submitted himself to the Lord and was faithful on our behalf. But also we have love and a love that's not like anything else. A love that is different than every other type of love. A love that's not based on attraction. It's not based on family ties. We're not tied to him. We're not actually sons of God, according to the Bible. We're sons of Satan, according to Jesus himself, naturally. This love is not based on anything. It's a despite of ourselves. It's free love. And it's a love we only find in Jesus Christ. And it's the love of Christ that fuels redemption. It's love that brings him down to be born of a manger, brings him down to live in our place and die in our place and to rise for us. It's love that is making him rule right now and love that he's interceding for us. And it's love that will bring him back for us. That's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul has received. And that's what we receive, too, if we believe in Christ. And now that Paul has talked about uh, his own personal experience, his own testimony, how he was this great sinner, a persecutor, a blasphemer, an opponent, and has received mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, he now gives us a more objective statement of fact about what this gospel is. Because Paul's not just telling us the good news or his own testimony because he's self-obsessed. It's not because he just likes talking about himself. No, rather he thinks this story, his own conversion, and the Holy Spirit apparently thinks that too because he talked six times we said, it shows us, it gives us a better understanding of what the good news is. And he's going to give us a clear statement in verse 15 of what this good news is in an objective way that this good news is what Paul has experienced in time. And it's a saying that is it's just a statement. It could even be translated proverb. This might be a saying that the church had. Paul probably didn't come up with this saying. It was just a saying that went around the church. It's a very old saying, but it's such a good. It's essentially the gospel in nine words, but it's a trustworthy saying. It's that is it's not you can trust it. You can put all of your uh, all of your trust, all of the uh, coins, all of whatever you want to put it, all the eggs in one basket. 
This is something you can trust for sure because it comes from God. It's not fake news. It doesn't come from people who are biased. It doesn't come from man. It comes from God who has done something in history objectively to for us in our salvation. The Holy Spirit has inspired his scriptures to tell us about it. This is something trustworthy. And because it's from God, it deserves full acceptance. That is, everyone must accept it. There's not anyone in here that shouldn't accept it, even if you've been a Christian for a long time. It's the gospel is still for you today. Even if you're not a Christian, you think you're not a sinner, you need it. Everyone needs this. It's for full acceptance. It's trustworthy. Everyone must accept it because every problem we face is answered by this good news in some way or other. We all live in a broken, sinful world. Sin has ruined everything. But in this good news, in the trustworthy statement, we have a solution. We have the ultimate good news that something has happened, that God has done something to turn it all around. And that's what we see in verse 15 now, the trustworthy statement. And you could write a book about every word in this uh, uh, passage. And I would, but I can't. Have, I don't have the time. And that will go by phrase by phrase. So what is the trustworthy statement? What is the good news? That Christ Jesus... What's the subject of the good news? It's a person. It's not a rule book. It's not even just a book. It's not a uh, new way of life. It's not a political philosophy. It's not a system. It's not a philosophy. It's a person. It all centers around Christ Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the only person in the world whose name is good news. Just his name itself is sweetness to a sinner's ear. If you just say my name, Luke Buson, you can't even probably say it very well because no one can say Fusen. But um, uh, that it doesn't tell you anything about me. And it's not good news at all. But Jesus, Christ Jesus, these are two words that are loaded with meaning. We say he's a Christ. He's Christ Jesus. He is the Christ. That is the Messiah. It's not his last name, as some people might think. But it's his title, his office. It tells us that all God's promises in the Old Testament are finding their yes and amen in him. When we say Jesus is the Christ, it's not just mere words. It's a statement of faith that Jesus is the one who God has promised to be a savior of the world, to fix this broken planet. All the way thousands of years ago in the garden, God was promising Christ. And when we say Jesus is Christ, we're saying so, so much. When we say Jesus is the Christ, we're saying Jesus is the one who is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. When we say that Jesus is the Christ, we're saying he's the one who's the seed of Abraham that will bless all the nations. When we say Jesus is the Christ, we're saying that he is the Passover sacrificial lamb that came to take away our sin. We are saying that he is the son of David who will rule and deliver his people. We are saying that he is the suffering servant who is pierced for our transgressions. We are saying that he is the son of man who is raised on the right hand of the ancient of days. We are saying that he is the greater Adam, the greater Moses, the greater David, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. When we call Jesus the Christ, we're saying all the Old Testament, all the promises, all the passages, all of God's salvific acts for us and of redemption are all centered on this one person, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're saying. And that's good news. God has kept his promises. He sent the Christ. And that's what we have in Jesus. And Jesus, even his proper name is good news. It wasn't just a name Mary thought sounded good. No, it was a name given by the angel, picked by God. Because it means Yahweh saves. That is the Lord saves. It's so because he is going to save his people from their sins. It's not man saves or politics saves or all this rule saves. No, it's 
The Lord saves. We need the Lord to save us. We don't need someone else, another human, a mere man can't do it. God's not going to share his glory either. The Lord saves. Jesus is God, Yahweh, in the flesh for our salvation. So even just the first two words of this, Christ Jesus is so loaded with good news. And that, what did this Christ Jesus do? He didn't just sit there. He did something. He came into the world. Because that's the good news. And that's what differentiates Christianity from so many other religions. Our Lord of glory didn't just sit up there in heaven waiting for us to come pile up enough good works to get up to him. He's not just sitting up there waiting for us or just waiting for us to all die here. No, God has done something. God has taken an initiative to come into our sinful, broken world. This world that's full of misery, full of wickedness, full of hurt, suffering and death. The Lord of glory in the person of Jesus Christ came into the world in the incarnation. Not because we deserved it. We didn't do anything to get him down here. He came on his own initiative. And why did he came? He came to save sinners. The Lord of glory, who is the one who is most offended by sins, the one who he spit in the face of constantly and countless amount of times, the one who we are enemies with. We're, we are sons, a part of the family of his worst enemy, the devil. But he came to save sinners, those who have transgressed him. And that's a stumbling block. That's great news, but it's a stumbling block to the world. It was for Paul's day and it is today. For the Jews of Paul's day, they didn't want a Christ that came to save sinners. They wanted a Christ that came to destroy sinners, to destroy the tax collectors and pagans. They wanted someone who would instantly wipe them all out. But little did the Pharisees know that they would have been wiped out too. And even if today, I feel like we live in an equally almost legalistic culture. If people today in our society would have wrote this, they would say, I would have Christ Jesus come to the world to cancel sinners, to make them stop talking. If they said something wrong, let's get rid of their livelihood. Let's get rid of them. Our society is so legalistic. But Jesus didn't come to cancel sinners. He didn't come to destroy sinners. He came to save sinners. Not partially save them, but completely save them. He did all of the work. He died in our place, taking the wrath of God. He rose for our justification and he is now interceding for us and will come back for us. He has done a complete salvation for us and that's why he came. And that's what we need to remember. And this is something uh, we need to remember as sinners even. The devil loves to accuse us. He's called the accuser of the brethren sometimes in Revelation. He loves to come to us and point out our sins so that we might go to God. We think we're too sinful. We think we can't pray. We can't go to his word. And that's something that we experience constantly, this accusing, this uh, guilt that we have. And the world says, okay, maybe just don't think you're a sinner. That's not right. You, then you don't need the gospel. We need to remember we're sinners, but not be in despair. This is why we can rejoice and still be sinners because of this good passage, this great promise. And Martin Luther, I don't know if you guys knew, he, he was a man who was very weird and he uh, claimed that he was constantly getting tempted by the devil audibly to make him stop doing uh, his reforming work. And one time he describes the devil coming into him and saying, Martin Luther, you are a sinner, therefore you will be damned. It kept saying this to him to make him stop in despair. And Martin Luther t- said to him, stop, stop. Uh, what, uh, one thing at a time, I'm a great sinner. It is true. Though you do not, ha- you have no right to tell me, I confess it. What next? And then Satan replied, you're a sinner, therefore you will be damned. Luther then said, that is not good reasoning. 
It is true that I'm a great sinner, but it is written, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Therefore, I shall be saved. Now go your way. So I cut the devil off with his own sword, and he went away mourning because he could not cast me down by calling me a sinner. Satan can't cast you down. No one can cast you down for calling you a sinner because we have this great passage that if you trust in Jesus, you will be saved. That we have a hope that stands firm. Objective reality. God in Christ has done all the work for us. And that's why we can rejoice and treasure this good news. But Paul has laid out this objective uh, gospel, this clear words, but it's not something that he keeps at an arm's length. He's something that it's applied personally to him. He says, of whom I'm the foremost of all. Even though he said this objective statement of fact, he still puts himself in it. It's his gospel. It's something that's happened to him personally. It's one thing to say, we're all sinners. It's another thing to say, I am a sinner. It's one thing to say, Jesus came to save sinners, all of us. It's another thing to say, Jesus came to save me. We must have personal faith of that. And some people may think Paul is being a little overdramatic here. Is he really the foremost of sinners? I don't think so. Paul knew sin better than anyone else, probably. And he knew his own heart better than anyone else. So how could he not be the most sinful person he knew? And also, it's not like Paul progressively, as he got older and godlier, thought he was more godly. No, actually, we see the opposite is true. In Paul's letters, you see this line. In 1 Corinthians, one of his first letters, he says, he's the least of the apostles. And in Ephesians, a later letter, he says, he is the least among the saints. And then in one of his last letters here, he says, I'm the foremost of sinners. Paul, the more he grew in godliness, the more he was aware of his own sin. Because the more we get to know this righteous God and how great this gospel is, the more we realize how much we don't deserve it, how much we uh, need him. So it goes both ways. We need to be remembered how sinful we are to remember the greatness of God and then once the greatness of the gospel, and then once we remember the greatness of the gospel, it leads us to remember our sin again, which makes us go back to the gospel. So it's a constant cycle of how Paul was able to say faithful in ministry. He never got over the gospel. He never got over his need for it. And he knew he was a sinner, and he knew that it personally needed to be saved. And that brings us to verse 16. Why is, going back to why would this uh, conversion story of this one man be listed so much in Scripture, more than the virgin birth or Lord's Supper. Why would it? Because it's a glorious example in verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's conversion is a demonstration of the Lord God of what his gospel can do. Because the Holy Spirit gives us Paul's conversion so much because he wants to get it through our thick skull that he means what he says. When God says, I save sinners, he puts his money where his mouth is. He, he wants us to firmly understand it. We want, we constantly think, no, these people can't be saved. But no, if God can save Paul, he can save the most vile of sin, sinners. Because Paul's conversion isn't out of the ordinary. It's not a special thing. No. It's something, example of what happens every time someone trusts in Christ. Every time someone is, there's no such thing as a boring testimony or a boring conversion. Every conversion is miraculous. Every conversion is an act of the triune God where the God, the Father elected them in eternity past and God the Son purchased them by His own blood and the Holy Spirit regenerated them, brought them back to life by His work. Every conversion is Paul's conversion. 
every conversion is where an insolent opponent of God who's spinning this faith, who's been evil, an enemy, is overcome and overflowed with grace and mercy to, to become in his service. That's what Paul's uh, example gives us. And let that not only make us more thankful for what God has done in us personally, but let us make us expectant for what God will do. That God is still saving sinners today. And he can save the most vile of people. When we uh, pray for other people or we tell the gospel, if God can save Paul, he can save that coworker. He can save that wayward family member. He can save that wicked politician. He can save dictators. Uh, he can let's start praying for Kim Jong-un. Let's, let's pray for all these people. There's no one that can't be saved. We, he's, and if you read history, that's one of the reasons I love church history. You'll see that the Lord has saved princes. He's saved poor people, rich people. He's saved emperors. He's saved communists, racists, you name it. Our Lord can save anyone as long as they're a sinner. That's the good news. And that's why let's start praying. Let's start uh, really taking God at his word when he says he saves sinners. Let us know that for sure. And as we see what great God he is, that he really does do what he says. And after outlining this good news, this great news of his own conversion, his own experience of it, Paul now goes to worship in verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul doesn't sound like a Chris Tomlin song here. It's not, it's not a song you would uh, praise, you would hear from a mega church necessarily. It's not sentimental. It's not even primarily based on God's love, even though he's received God's love. He goes for the high view of God here. The big theology stuff that people have written books and books, and it's almost impossible for us to understand. He is, instead of being stunned by how little God is, or he, the gospel makes him stunned at how big God is, his majesty. He calls God the king of ages. That is he, a ruler a sovereign who does whatever he pleases. No one can tell him what to do. He does. He saves sinners because he wants to. No one's forced him. And he's the king of ages. That is forever and ever. God, Paul does not worship a cosmic butler that is just trying to here to make us uh, rich and happy and wealthy. No, he worships a king who demands loyalty and obedience. A king who is forever and ever Lord. He's not just a, a kindly old guy on the clouds with lightning bolts or with uh, just sitting up there doing who knows what. No, this is a king who does things. And also he's the invisible or uh, the immortal God. That is, he can't die. No one can. He's the God of life. The psalmist calls him a fountain of life. No one could ever hurt him or do anything against him. He's eternal. He doesn't have any limitations whatsoever. There's not an ounce of corruption found in this God. He's pure life. And he's also invisible. That is this God who's so holy, so glorious, if he were to show us just his face, it would kill everyone in this room right now. A God who is invisible. He, he transcends material uh, limitations. He's everywhere at once. We can't even understand that. He is greater than we can even see or think. And he is the only God. He's in a class by himself. He alone is God. There's none other than him. There's no one you can compare him to. No, it would all be uh, for vain. He is greater than anyone else. He alone stands apart from all creaturely limitations. He doesn't have any limitations whatsoever. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. He's the only God, the one who's only the creator, the only the sustainer, and the only savior. He is a triune being. We only we have no concept for that. He's 
One God in three persons. He is our Savior. He is the only one that can save sinners. And that's where Paul leaves. It's him who deserves all the glory. Because once we understand the gospel, understand how sinful we need, how desperate we need the gospel, then we would understand the greatness of the gospel. And that leads us to understand how great our God is so that we may worship him. And I pray that this passage would be on your mind this week, that you'd realize that I am in need of a savior. I am in desperate need of God, that you would never get over the gospel, that you wouldn't fall into false teaching or uh, not being faithful because uh, you got into everything except the gospel, that no, that God would keep your heart, the Holy Spirit would convict you that you are in need of a savior. And that we need to know this God. We need to know this God who saves sinners. And he's given us a great salvation. And that great salvation, let it lead you to worship this week in your thoughts. Out of a high view of God. That a God who's done the impossible, that saves great, great, great sinners, not based on need or want, but on his free power. That he became man somehow. That he died for us. That he lived for us. That he is raised for our justification that we would be faithful in the service God gave us because we're gospel people, that we are God, people who see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I pray that'll be this this week. I'll pray for us to close. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, message. I pray that we would know the good news, that we would uh, hold fast to it, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and that you would never, ever let us forget it, Lord. And I pray that whatever service... Uh, we have this week, whatever you called us to, that we'd be faithful in it, that you would strengthen us, that we'd receive the grace you've offered us, and that we would worship you as the great God of majesty you are. In Jesus' name, amen.